Beyond the Mic with Sean Dillon. We're joined on the BeyondTheMic.com star line by senior technology reporter for BuzzFeed and author of the new book, Always Day One, Alex Kantrowitz. Welcome. Thank you, Sean. I've been looking forward to this for a long time, and I'm excited to be on with you. Let's go beyond the mic. Where were you born, and where did you grow up? I was born in Long Island, so right outside of New York. And actually didn't spend much time outside of Long Island until about five years ago uh, when I moved out to San Francisco to come cover the tech giants. I know we can get to that in a bit, but yeah, it was an interesting uh, place to grow up right outside of New York. So we had access to the city, but it was kind of quiet. And Long Island has its own distinct culture. (laughs) Elements of it have made it onto popular shows like the Jersey Shore. And I can confirm that a lot of that is true. It's sort of how the place (laughs) operates. I have bad things to say about it and good things to say about it. But ultimately, I'm, I'm grateful for the way that I was raised. Yeah, I think that place will always be a part of me for sure. Now, how did your early days in New York color the way that you look at your home state as they battle coronavirus? It's tough to see what New York is going through right now. I guess if there was any state in the U.S. or any city, any metropolitan area in the U.S. that was susceptible to a big outbreak, it would be the New York metro area. There's a bunch of reasons for that. One is it is a global crossroads. People from all over the world come to New York. Two is that it's dense and you know the subway system is the most built out public transportation system in the United States. You can get anywhere you need to go on the subway, which is a blessing, but it also means that people and germs are mixing all the time. So you can have somebody, let's say with a coronavirus case in the Bronx, can very you know quickly get down to Brooklyn or, the, or Queens. And then it seems to be what happened in New York. And thirdly, like the leadership there was unfortunately slow to act, shut down later than San Francisco, which to me, you know, they knew the risk factors. They should have shut down earlier. Uh, Unfortunately, they didn't. But I'll tell you one thing about New York. It's a resilient place. It's a strong place. It's been through tragedy before. You know, I was in high school when 9-11 happened. And I've seen the way the city is able to rally around and pick each other up. You know, there's this impression of New Yorkers that they're kind of salty and mean. You know, I think that New Yorkers don't really uh, tolerate People dilly-dallying too much. They're sort of direct and to the point. And that can be the reason why it sort of comes off as a little terse. Um, But I do know that it's a strong, beautiful community there. And the people in that city will pick each other up and get through the stronger. You started at the NYU School of Continuing and Professional Studies, spent some time in Istanbul studying international politics and economics, and in Jerusalem. And you finished your degree in industrial and labor relations at Cornell. How did that time overseas prepare you for covering the tech giants? Well, I think, yeah, it's a great question. I did spend uh, about a year and a half abroad during college, three semesters, two in Israel, one in Istanbul. And I think that, unfortunately, in Silicon Valley, there can be this myopic view where people think about, you know, Menlo Park and Palo Alto, and sometimes their mind goes to San Francisco and the suburbs around the city. But I think being abroad really told me that you know, these companies have impact everywhere. And it's when these companies haven't really realized their global impact. Like, for instance, when Facebook uh, didn't really grasp what was happening when it rolled out in Myanmar and was a tool for, you know, propaganda that helped contribute to a genocide there, um, that's when they got into trouble. So I do think that understanding there's a world outside of Silicon Valley, um, and that's what platforms do. They reach outward and can impact billions of people has been definitely helpful context for me reporting on the tech giants. You've run political campaigns, sold ad technology, and covering the marketing side of elections, as well as the Vatican social media strategies. Eight years ago, you got your first freelance check. 
Looking back, did you think you'd be where you are today, an author of a book and covering the major players in technology the way you are? Uh, This is definitely a pleasant surprise for me, (laughs) I have to admit. I came out of school in the middle of the financial crisis. Didn't have many options. You know, I sat through a graduation where the school president was talking about how proud he was that so many of his graduates were going to work and going to the Peace Corps and um, doing things like Teach for America. And I was going to my parents' couch. I had nothing going on. Wow. You know, I had to scrap for a while. Jobs weren't easy to come by. I felt like a failure for a while. I knew I liked to write, but the journalism uh, industry was being decimated. And, you know, not only did I not think I was good enough to make it there, but I also just didn't really see a career path. And that's how I ended up doing these sales and marketing jobs. One of the real blessings that I had was that I was in an ad tech company at a time when the advertising industry was transforming. Um, and I had these experiences to learn about the ins and outs from my the CEO of the company, a guy named Mike Leo. I did a little bit of ghostwriting for, and he and I would just sort of, you know, sit and talk about the advertising industry. And he sort of sat there with me and ran me through every single little component and showed me where the industry could get better. You know, one of the most amazing things about this guy, Mike, is that he is a guy who's not one of the ad people who will bullshit you. Like he's a person who is not afraid to call out where the bodies are buried. And he taught me the ins and outs of the advertising industry. Then when I decided to make a move into journalism, I was able to go to ad age. And with my background, having sold the technology and having learned under Leo, interesting to be able to get to cover the industry and sort of uh, make a bit of a ruckus, pointing out where it could be better. And then eventually, like I realized that you know, all the energy was going from the ad tech companies in New York to the tech companies in Silicon Valley, Facebook, Google, Twitter, Snapchat, LinkedIn, all propelled by advertising. And so that helped me make the move out here. We're talking with Alex Kantrowitz, author of Always Day One on Beyond the Mic. Amazon employees live differently than normal people, sometimes working through vacations and shortly thereafter medical procedures. In your book, you say, quote, at Amazon, you invent or you hit the road, unquote. Do you think Amazon can maintain such a high level of creativity burning so bright before they fade? Well, I do think Amazon will fade at a certain point, as all companies will. The question is what that time horizon is. And what Amazon's done well is is it's extended its horizon by building an invention culture inside the company. Companies don't invent by accident. They have to build structures to do it. And, you know, I don't think it's because Amazon works its people so hard. Although it does work people hard, I think it could actually do better sort of taking its foot off the gas on that front a little bit. And and I think it has in recent years. But what Amazon's done really well is build these systems to help bring ideas to life. So it's created this six-pager system where when people have an idea for a project, they write it down as a narrative in six pages. And then they can circulate that around the organization and it can get to anywhere. You know, think about that in terms of like what you would do if you were at a traditional organization. You would tell your boss and their boss would tell their boss and their boss would tell their boss. And if anybody along the chain said, I don't really know about that idea, that thing isn't going to make it to prime time. But at Amazon, by writing it down, it's able to, you know, make its way fairly quickly to the decision makers who are able to get caught up. These six pages of everything, what the history is, how this project will impact people later on, what the financial plan is, what it will look like for every stakeholder once it's out. So a senior leader can actually pick that up, read it pretty quickly, and then get up to speed on the project and decide whether or not they want to bring it to prime time or not. And this is how Amazon has been able to invent over and over and over again. You know, it's gone from an online bookstore to a website that sells just about everything on the internet to a third-party marketplace where people from outside Amazon can go on the website and sell 
through Important Logistics and Fulfillment Center, through an Academy Award-winning movie studio, through a grocer or cloud service provider, not to mention a voice computing platform and a pretty well-renowned hardware manufacturer. So this is what happens inside Amazon. It's a DNA of saying it's always day one, which is the title of the book. Amazon, the idea is we're not going to hang on to whatever we did beforehand. We're always going to be inventing for the future, even if that means our existing businesses are going to take a hit. And by doing that, the company has extended its time horizon. You know, typically, you have these big companies, once they get to the size of Amazon, which is 800,000 employees going up to 900,000 pretty soon, you know, they get big, they get bureaucratic, they ossify, and they fall apart. But Amazon is able to continually invent because it keeps the stay one mentality. It listens to ideas from all over, finds a way to bring them to decision makers and get them to quick judgment. So the time horizon extends for that company for sure. Since you brought it up, Amazon employs more than 200,000 robots in comparison to 800,000 humans. In how many years do you see that ratio inverted? That's a good question. I don't think that robots are going to outpace human workers anytime soon. But I do see Amazon continuing to push toward more automation in its uh, company, both in the fulfillment centers, right, which is the warehouse, where there are these robots that pick up racks and bring them to people, and the people pick out the items and put them in a bin, and the bin gets sent off to packing people, and the packing people pack the boxes, and the box arrives at your house. I think Amazon would like to see more automation there. Potentially, they'll try to automate some of the packing or some of the picking of out of the racks. But, you know, what's interesting is that the more Amazon adds robots, the more it seems to add people. I think the reason why Amazon automates is because it wants to give people time to invent more. You know, there's also this automation program that's happening in its headquarters where the people that used to manage the relationships with the vendors have seen a lot of their tasks automated. So it used to be that you would have somebody who would work with Tide and say, we want these many units of detergents and this many fulfillment centers at this many, you know, at this price. And we'll promote them in this way. Amazon has given that almost all over to the machine. And the reason why it's done that is it's been able to redeploy the people who have worked on managing those relationships and turn them into product managers. And product managers inside Amazon are professional inventors. They dream up new products and help bring them to life. And so I think that it's not what's happening at Amazon isn't necessarily a question of how fast can the company replace its human workers with robots. It really is a question of, you know, how inventive can it get? How many more business lines can it make its way into? With that said, I would say that Amazon should have a high number of human workers for a long time to come. Facebook thrives on feedback. After they were demonized by the Cambridge Analytical data scandal, how has Facebook responded to their own vulnerabilities? Yeah, so Facebook has this feedback culture. You know, the first time I met Mark Zuckerberg, first thing he did was ask me for feedback. It's like, wait, wait. You know, we don't usually have this in, in CEO interviews where the CEOs are asking for feedback. But with Zuckerberg, that's exactly what it was. So I started asking people, what's the deal with this feedback thing? You know, does he ask you? And I found out that feedback is embedded pretty deeply into Facebook culture, major meetings, and with requests for it. Um, there's a full day training, which I took and wrote about in the book, um, where employees are taught to give and receive feedback. And there are posters uh, in Facebook's Menlo Park headquarters that say feedback is a gift. And by prioritizing feedback, Facebook has made its executives open to receiving ideas for new products and services from anyone. And it's made its employees, you know, happy to give those ideas to people. It doesn't matter where they are in the chain. Employees regularly go right up to Zuckerberg and tell them what they think. I think the one issue for Facebook, why we've seen Facebook in, in all these scandals, is a lesson about the nature in feedback systems. You know, feedback is only as good as the people that you ask it from. And inside Facebook, they've been asking people who are techno-optimists a lot about 
you know, what they think about products and how they should do things. And that's caused them to miss vulnerabilities inside the products. So I think what's happened inside Facebook is that they've gone through a moment of self-reflection and said, wait a second, we need more adversarial thinkers in our organization. And so they've embarked on this program to hire people who used to be spies, ex-academics, journalists, media buyers who know how to pressure-tested system, and general dark thinkers. And they said, look, we're going to put you into place. You're going to see how our products are being developed, and you're going to tell us where they go wrong, because obviously we were oblivious to that beforehand. With these new inputs is what I call them. I think Facebook has done a pretty good job in turning itself into a company that's better, that better anticipates where things could go wrong. You know, it's not perfect. There's still a lot of room to grow, but at least the company recognizes that problem and is starting to put concrete steps into place to fix it. Speaking of feedback, what's your feedback on Zuckerberg? What's your first opinion on him? He is an interesting CEO. He has this way of talking to you where um, he like really speaks in like uh, paragraphs. Like it seems like his ideas are fully formulated and they just get printed out, you know, when they come out. Um, but I, I do think that he's like, you know, for me, I'm a, a reporter on, on social media. Uh, this guy essentially invented social media. So, you know, I basically spend maybe six months, nine months, reporting on different things, seeing different trends, thinking about how they work, thinking about what they mean for the world. And then it's always interesting to be able to go in and ask Zuckerberg about them and sort of see what he thinks. You know, I've generally had pretty positive experiences with him. I think he's like fairly thoughtful. He's warmer in person than he is, let's say, on camera, which I think is just a surprise for a lot of people. And I do think that he generally cares about what people think. Like he's definitely seeking to learn in every interaction and it's very usual for me to ask him a question and then him to turn it around and say, okay, well, why don't you tell me what you think? And then we can see, you know, get to an answer. Definitely interesting speaking with him. Is the fear that Mark has is that he could be the Tom of MySpace? Oh, I remember going on there. Totally. Yeah. I think that's what motivates him. And it's what motivates all the tech giant CEOs. All these companies are dead set on not end up, you know, not turning into uh, the company that was a has been. Um, and again, it's similar to Amazon with the time horizons, right? Amazon says always day one. Why does it want to be an always day one? Because it doesn't want to be in a MySpace situation. Same with Facebook. Facebook says 1% done. These companies know how fast the business world moves today. I think in the 1920s, the average Fortune 500 company would stay on the list for about 70 years. Today, it's 15 years. They know how fast things move. And that's why they're all building these cultures of invention, because they understand but the second you start to be complacent with the business that you have, you're going to be in some serious trouble. And that's kind of what's interesting about the tech giants is they've never really been satisfied with their current offering because they know very quickly MySpace goes from the hot thing to the afterthought. And the same thing can happen with Facebook, especially with, you know, because social media users are pretty fickle. They get bored you know, pretty fast. That's why I wrote the book. I wanted to tell people, hey, there are these systems that you can use to, to stay relevant in today's economy, especially now, right? Everyone's going to have to adapt. And instead of pointing to the tech giants as like being these unknowable, unbeatable, you know, mysterious beings, they actually have systems that we can know and learn from. And that was sort of the point of doing the book. It's Alex Kantrowitz, author of Always Day One on Beyond the Mic. In your book, you talk about the hive mind that is prevalent in Google and the procedures that are ingrained in Amazon. Which fascinates you more and why? I'm definitely more fascinated with Amazon. Amazon has this uh, incredibly distinct culture that I don't really think you see any other place. You know, it, it starts with these six pagers, which is how products get built there. But there's also a series of leadership principles where people adhere to them, like 
almost uh, more strongly than their own religions. You know, these are 14 commandments inside Amazon, things like think big and invent and simplify, that Amazonians believe in so deeply that they, you know, people who, coworkers that marry each other use these principles to structure their relationships. People teach them to their kids, and when Amazonians are off the clock, they say, oh, that, you know, they're going out to do something, and someone picks, like, a lesser activity, they say, oh, you know, that wasn't thinking big. You know, if I could spend a couple of years just as a fly on a wall at any of these cultures, I think Amazon would be the one. Um, I really, you know, think that the DNA that they have to create products is pretty fascinating and unique and distinct and obviously has served them pretty well. I do think Google is pretty interesting, too. I mean, if you're an employee at the lowest level on Google, you can basically you know, figure out what the entire company is doing. There are no silos at all. And that's pretty fascinating. But yeah, if it was a toss up between Google and Amazon, uh, to me, Amazon is more interesting. What's your thoughts on movement from a document based on a local computer to cloud storage and the security problems they're in? Yeah, I mean, you definitely will have more security issues if you're in the cloud. You know, you're, you're storing documents on the browser. It's more easily hackable because there's more entry points. Uh, but I will say that the interesting thing about these cloud companies is they're almost like a co-op. Like when you store files on Amazon Web Services on, or on Azure and Microsoft, you, along with thousands of other businesses, are counting on these companies to keep your you know information secure. And because you're doing that, you're investing in them. And you know, they understand how important security is, so they'll invest in security as well. And you could potentially hope that because it's so critical to their business to keep things you know, protected, that they're going to do a good job because they know what the alternative is. How has the political polarization of America been highlighted at Google? That's a great question. Yeah, I would say that Google is definitely has a politically active employee base who've rallied around different uh, issues. Some of them have been on like a more partisan line. You know, for instance, using artificial intelligence to, to help drones target people. You know, there's definitely a part of the country that is uncomfortable with that. There's another part of the country that says, yeah, let's support the military and give them all the tools they need. So I do think that the people inside Google definitely fall on the more left-leaning side of things and have been erupting in protest. You know, some of them say, well, you know, we can't do much to to change the person in the White House right now. So we'll try to enact change here at home inside Google. And they've rallied you know, against military technology, against uh, building a search engine for China. The biggest protest there was against payouts to someone who was accused of uh, sexual harassment. 20,000 people in the company walked right out of the place. So I do feel that like inside Google, that political protest has been a channel for larger feelings about you know the way the country is and the world is moving. Apple has really struggled in the innovation of new products. Is this weakness a problem with their company culture or is it an example of thriving beyond failures like the Pippin, the Apple three and the home pod? Yeah, I think a hundred percent Apple is going to struggle if it doesn't change its culture. Now I think Apple does one thing really well, which is the iPhone and it's kept refining that iPhone over and over to the point where it's like a pretty good device. You know, I'm, I'm an iPhone owner, proud iPhone owner. I think it's great. And I'm going to hang on to that phone for sure. The place where Apple gets into trouble is when it tries to develop new things. So I would say that their uh, inability to bring their divisions together has caused problems. You know, they've been working on a virtual assistant for a long time. And apologies to Siri, but that decade of development inside Apple hasn't produced anything all that usable. I have the Siri turned off on my iPhone. But, you know, a company like Google, which has no silos, which we talked about, which any information is accessible to anyone, has created a culture where collaboration is possible you know, where they're able to quickly adapt and build for the next iteration of their business. So Apple, you know, 
if it keeps its culture, which is very silent, very secretive, doesn't really accept ideas coming down from the rank and file, um, it's going to be a struggle, right? And so I do think the company needs to change and come more in line with Facebook, Google, and Microsoft and find its way in building a culture that will not only refine the iPhone, but invent its way into the next generations of computing. I will give them credit. One of the things that Apple has done really well is Apple Pay. How do you think they've leveraged Apple Pay where Google and others haven't? Yeah, it's, it's another great example of what a refinement culture does. It makes the current device you're using more useful. And it sort of puts all of this eggs in one basket. You know, Apple's been great at refining the iPhone. Apple Pay is one example. The uh, AirPods, which are headphones for Apple users, is another example. The Apple Watch, which is a watch for iPhone users, is another example. Apple, you know, I met with Steve Wozniak, who's Apple's co-founder. And he said, what Apple's been great at doing is not making necessarily the shiniest thing, but the simplest thing and the thing that makes your life, you know, as easy to use as possible. And I think Apple Pay is like one example of that. I love that product, right? Just double click on the side of the phone. Your credit card is there. No touch, which is helpful today for sure. Uh, and you've paid. Yeah, I think that Apple Pay is another example of just Apple making the iPhone more useful. It's what they're very good at. It will take them far. But on a long time horizon, focusing on things like that, you know, may not having myopic focus on doing things like that isn't, you know, will not pay off for Apple, in my opinion. Speaking of Microsoft, how have they moved from purchasing a, a product that you've got a license for and you own that product forever to purchasing a limited time use of a product like Office 365? How has that helped them milk their assets to their benefit? That's a great question. So I'll say this. So I think when you think about the history of Microsoft and the, and the existence of the current product offering, you go back to culture. And the culture inside Microsoft emphasized the Windows desktop operating system above all else. Microsoft was a Windows company. That's what it did. And so everything else was an extension of Windows. You know, Internet Explorer was a browser for Windows. Uh, Microsoft Word was a word processor for Windows. Excel was a spreadsheet for Windows. PowerPoint was a presentation system for Windows. For a long time inside Microsoft's Redmond headquarters, there was nothing in the world outside of Windows, which meant Microsoft would not develop anything for an Apple product. Microsoft would not develop anything that would be accessible on a Chromebook. And actually, there's a story in my book where Microsoft actually, Google make, starts building all these products for the web browser, which can be accessible on any desktop operating system as long as you have the internet. So they start building Google Docs and Google Sheets and Google Slides, which is their version of PowerPoint. And Microsoft actually slows down or decides to put to stop developing Internet Explorer because they knew that they would enable these Google products. So they've always been on this protect, uh, they always have been on this protect pathway. So what Microsoft really had to do to reimagine itself is say, okay, look, we invested pretty hard and try to milk this asset of the desktop operating system. But guess what? We're not living in a desktop world anymore. We're living in a mobile world. Not only that, people are starting to do all their computing on the, on the browser, not, uh, not installed on desktop. So you don't really uh, see many people doing word processing on programs installed on their computers. It's all happening inside the browser. And Microsoft at that point had two options. One was they could continue to milk Windows until it's dead. Or two was they, had to, they could embrace this new cloud and mobile future and start building all of, it, all of its products to that, for that. And so that's why you start to see Microsoft doing a few things. One is it starts to enable cloud computing, even at the expense of a desktop operating system. You know, if you start supporting programs that can work 
on the browser, people don't need a Windows machine. They can use an Apple machine, they can use a Chromebook, or they can use something uh, that supports Windows. So Microsoft said, look, we're going to take the hit on Windows and we're going to start building for the cloud. Okay, now we'll get back to these you know, word processing programs in Microsoft Office, right? If Microsoft was just working to defend Windows, you know, you don't want those programs going on the internet because that will mean that I'm to be on a, a Apple computer and start using Microsoft Word. So why would I need Windows? So they decided to just open it up to everyone and say, listen, we're not going to fight the future. We're going to try to build ahead of the future. And that's why you start to see things like instead of having to buy and download Microsoft Word, you can just sign up for a subscription and use it on the browser, whether you're on a Windows machine, a Google machine, or an Apple machine. As other tech giants are looking at specific products to offer, Microsoft is looking to be the home of data through their Azure cloud computing centers. How do you see this as a benefit for Microsoft? Yeah, so I think that this is, again, going from that trend where Microsoft said, listen, you know, the desktop operating system is not going to keep us sustainable in a world where people are on their phones and people are are on the browser and can use any type of machine. And so they say, okay, listen, so what's the next thing that's going to happen? Well, if there's going to be a computing revolution on the browser, we ought to be the services that help people build those programs on the browser. And that's what Microsoft Azure does. It's If you want to build software that will work on Chrome or Internet Explorer or Safari you uh, or Mozilla Firefox, you go to Microsoft and you say, okay, give me the back-end infrastructure that allows me to build these programs. So it's fascinating, right? So Microsoft has gone from being this Goliath that was the gatekeeper to the desktop to an enabler that helps companies build on top of its services for any machine, doesn't matter whether it's Windows or not. And by doing that, it sort of caught the wave of the next era of computing and has been able to make itself relevant once more. And I really think that's, again, the day one mindset, right? Day one means, you know, are you going to build for the future regardless of your legacy? Day two is your legacy is the thing that's holding you back. And Microsoft was in day two under Steve Ballmer. It was a Windows company run by Windows warriors. Satya Nadella has gone to day one and started to build for the future, which is a cloud mobile first era. Do you think the tech giants are close to being examined to be broken up by Congress? Have they become too big? I think so. Okay, there's the reality and then there's what should happen. The reality is they're not going to be broken up anytime soon. I think Congress uh, has its hands full with the coronavirus and regulators too. Right. Yeah, I don't think that this is a moment in time where it's going to be politically palatable to break these companies up. Reality wise, you know, it might not hurt to break them up because one of the things that happens when you consolidate all this power into so few companies, they start to get cute with the suppliers. Right. So Amazon has such a hold over retailers that they can start to dictate the terms to little businesses. Right. Who really don't have any recourse. Now, if Amazon was a few companies, these smaller businesses could say, okay, I can go to this company or that company, whichever gives me the best deal. And then to get the supply, these you know broken up companies would have to offer sweeter deals to the smaller businesses, which would make the economy stronger. So I don't think there's going to be any breakup coming down the pike anytime soon, but I do think it's something that regulators should consider once things get back to normal. Where do you see the future for each of these companies? Or let's just put it this way, which one uh, is the big bad wolf and which <laughs> one are the three little pigs? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, in the short term, Sean, all these companies are going to be the big bad wolf because we're living in this era of coronavirus where everybody's at home and all of their services become way more important than they were before. And which is kind of hard to believe that they would become even more relevant than they were when I started writing this book. But they're the five most relevant companies in the economy right now. I mean, in an era where you have to stay at home, Amazon's going to be the home delivery service of choice. 
when you can't see your friends and family. People are going to start talking to them through services like like Gmail, like Facebook Messenger, like WhatsApp, like FaceTime, right? So that puts Google, Facebook, and Apple right in the spotlight. It's also they're also the companies we're getting our information from. You know, how are people trying to figure out what's going on with coronavirus? Well, they're searching on Google, they're watching YouTube videos, and they're going on Facebook to see what's happening. So they do play a much bigger role in terms of that. And then finally, we're we're spending much more time on the internet which means cloud services like Amazon Web Services and Microsoft Azure are now, you know, the critical infrastructure in our country in terms of the way that business and entertainment works and communication works. And then finally, we're collaborating in Microsoft Teams, for instance, and Google Hangouts are, you know, two big platforms that people who are working from home have been using. So amazingly, all of these platforms become way more relevant. And I think that this is their make or break moment. So we will see who the three little pigs are after this by the way that they handle this. If they rise to the occasion and manage to do it well, then they're going to become way stronger. So if Amazon is able to protect its workers while maintaining its supply chain, you know, it's going to have a, a, just a, a place in the economy that's going to be very difficult to dislodge because you'll see much more people relying on it. More people will become prime members. They won't go back. Same with Facebook and Google, right? If they do a good job getting good information to people. They're going to start to shoot down some of these complaints that we've had over the years um, that they're vectors of misinformation. On the other hand, if Amazon causes its workers, you know, doesn't protect its workers' safety, and they end up dying because of lack of safety precautions, you know, the tech class that we've been going through the, through the past couple of years is going to seem like a walk in the park. It's going to be terrible. You know, the next few years will be terrible for Amazon, and people will find alternatives. Same with Facebook and Google. If they allow misinformation to spread on their platforms, the tech class is going to seem like you know a dream compared to what's going to happen because people will die because of the misinformation um, if they allow it to spread. So I think critical make or break moment for these companies. But I know you asked who, you know, you, you want me to take some bets on who it's going to be. <laughs> I think Amazon and Google do pretty well long term. I think that Facebook and Microsoft occupy the middle. And I think Apple becomes sort of what Microsoft was during the Steve Ballmer era, which is a once great company that holds on to some of its legacy products, um, but doesn't do a great job getting into the next era of computing. There isn't a book for launching a new book during a pandemic. Thinking of writing one? Yeah, that's right. That's the word. People have said, hey, how's it going? And, and uh, you know, I, I started with some answers. Yeah, it's okay. It's hard. It's good. And honestly, the word that you picked out is spot on. It's challenging. I mean, this is a time where, you know, there's very little attention to anything outside of coronavirus. Uh, the airports are shut down, are basically empty. Bookstores are shut down. So how do you get books in front of people? Uh, but you know what? I, I really think that this is a lesson in learning to control what you control. And that's what I've been doing. I've been, I've been holding a virtual book tour. I have an online uh, book club that we're starting around Always Day One where anyone can join for free. And we'll talk about a chapter each week um, with special guests, um, which I know you picked up on on Twitter. And honestly, you know, as an author, you've got to celebrate where you can. So there's this little free library near me that I've been running by almost every day working on the book. And I said, one day I'm going to put my book in this in this little library. And so on lunch day, I wasn't able to hold a party, but I did sign the book and drop it off in the library. And that felt pretty good. Nice. So you do what you can. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, you do what you can. You try to get the message out in any way possible. And honestly, like, I believe this book is, is something with staying power. I believe it's relevant to this moment to any company because all companies are going to need to adapt. And anybody in the business world are going to need to adapt. And the tech giants have been great at adapting. And I believe that by learning the way, learning their lessons, anybody's going to be better off uh, in this moment. So 
that's the plan. Control what I can control, you know, work harder than I would have otherwise. And I was already going to work pretty hard and take the opportunities as they come and hope that the book, you know, resonates with the audience. That always day one book club. Why was this so important for you to do? Oh, yeah. So actually, it was um, a few of people that I'm friends with on Twitter uh, suggested, hey, why don't we do a book club? And, you know, it's kind of this kind of fun throwaway idea. But then I was like, wait a second. You know, all of us are at home. You know, we have time to read. We have, we have we're seeking for community. Uh, and why not build a community around the book? And so I thought, you know, we had some options. Can we broadcast it on YouTube? And I said, I want to do it something that's interactive. So we have a link that anybody can click and join from their browser. We'll have people from all walks of life be able to join in and talk about a chapter each week. You know, you don't even have to have bought the book. Like, anybody can join. And I think that, like, yeah, like, being able to reach out to people who are at home, who are looking to enrich their lives a little bit, who are looking to spend time with a uh, community uh, that might be missing because we can't do that in real life anymore. Come around once a week. It'll be every Wednesday at 5 uh, Pacific and 8 Eastern. And to just say, let's let's do this. Let's talk about the concepts here. Let's think about how these tech giants are adapting. And for me, like it's an amazing opportunity to hear from readers and people that are interested about the ideas that resonate for them. And, you know, maybe it will give me an idea for the second book. Who knows? But I'm very, very excited about it. We've had dozens of people sign up in under 24 hours, and I'm just thrilled that it's off the ground. Now, we're friends on, on Twitter, and I can't wait for the first week. Who's going to be your first special guest? So the first week is going to be about the introduction. Uh, and the introduction talks a lot about how technology is changing the way we work. So I have a couple of people who I've asked to be, uh, to be special guests. We'll see if they come through. Um, one is uh, a woman named Fallon Fatimi. She is the uh, CEO of a company called Node here in San Francisco. It's an AI company. It's backed by Mark Cuban, uh, who I was able to meet during the reporting of the book, and he's quoted in the book. And Fallon has this amazing perspective on what the workplace is going to look like um, when we see more technology embedded in it. So I've asked her to join. And uh, I've also asked this guy, Craig LeClaire, who's an analyst at Forrester, to join. I haven't heard back from him, but it'd be great if he joined. Um, he is a guy who looks at automation, not only, you know, not the type of automation you see in factories necessarily, but the type of automation we might see in office jobs. And I think that he'd be a great guest too. So I've asked him. We'll see what he says. He's quoted in the book. But I would say this. Ultimately, you know, we're going to have, you know, a session. You know, the following week will be on Amazon. The following week will be on Facebook. The one after that on Google. The one after that on Apple. And the one after that on Microsoft. And over the course of reporting the book, I've met some amazing people who have worked and have been in these companies' orbits. And I, and I promise anybody out there that we'll make sure to get some good folks from all these companies to be able to talk about, you know, how these companies take ideas and turn them into, into products and just the general culture there. And honestly, like, you know, I'm not trying to make it, you know, all that serious. So we'll try to have some fun uh, inside the book club as well. And I think it's just going to be a great community, you know, filled with ideas from all over. Time's running out. So it's time for the Rocky Nate. First answer that comes to your mind. No okay, question. I actually have to go now. So I'm kidding. <laughs> no, you said you're going to do the end. You're not leaving. <laughs> okay, I can't escape it. All right, let's do it. <laughs> what search engine do you use on a daily basis? Google. Best thing you ate when you were in Istanbul? Oh, okay. So they had this thing called chikofte, which means raw meatballs. And um, what used to happen is they would take raw meat and just kind of put it in a bunch of spices, and the spices would uh, would cook the meat. <laughs> they didn't even have to put it in other. But anyway, yeah. Um, so people turned out. It turned out people got sick from it. So now they use like some sort of grain and chikofte, and 
It tastes like meatballs. It's delicious. They say, oh, God, I'm, I'm thinking about it and just dreaming of being back there. And they serve it to you with a special sauce and lemon and lettuce. And you just get a, uh, a wrap and you just grab pieces of it off and make these little, you know, burritos. And I got to tell you, Sean, I'm, I'm going to, you know, if I could book a flight right now, I would book one right back to Istanbul because that stuff was good. In the future, what city would you like to retire in? Uh, that's a great question. So I think that I'd like to retire in Ithaca, which is a small town about 15 minutes south of where I live right now. It's right on the water. There's miles and miles of hiking trails that you know, aren't too grueling that you can take. And for me, you know, I could be in the worst mood. And every time I go to Pacifica, I just feel refreshed. Uh, the water is beautiful. The scenery is beautiful. Beautiful. The people are nice. And for a couple of months of the year, and I'd say starting about now, April, May, June, July. Oh, nice. We'll have whales that will swim right up to the shore, maybe 100 feet away. And they just kind of lunge out of the water and gobble things. And <laughs> uh, they stick their tail out. And I don't know, I think they're the most beautiful animals. So I'm always excited to see them. Do you have a favorite hobby? Favorite hobby? I don't know if this is actually a hobby, but running. To me, running is what centers me. I think living in San Francisco, I've been lucky. There's a park out here called Glen Canyon Park, which has amazing scenery. And, and uh, it's only a mile away from my house. So when I'm you know, in a rut, I'll, I'll hop out of that house, put some running shoes on, make my way through there, come back refreshed. What's one thing people don't know about you? Okay, well, here's one. You know, there was a time, <laughs> sorry, there was a time where I didn't think I'd be a professional journalist, but I should have seen the writing on the wall. Uh, because when I was maybe around eight or nine years old, uh, I made a newspaper for the people on my block. We called it the School Street Newspaper. And I would go out and do reporting and interview them about their experiences. You know, one of their encounters with a celebrity and then one had like a carbon monoxide uh, leak. <laughs> and I went and interviewed them and talked about the story, you know, because it was like a exciting, you know, if it bleeds, it leaves. There was the whole fire department came out and I was a nine-year-old kid. That's pretty thrilling. And I said, that's my top story. So uh, I'll make a deal to any of your listeners if they uh, hit me up on Twitter. Uh, my uh, my handle is at K-A-N-T-R-O-W-I-T-Z. Uh, and ask for uh, an image of the front page of the Carbon Monoxide School Street Newspaper Edition. I will reply with it. That's a promise. Where was your favorite place to relax in Israel? Okay, it's, it's got to be the Dead Sea. Um, you know, the Dead Sea is this amazing uh, body of water. It's the lowest place on Earth, and it's filled with salt, right? And so you walk in, and it feels like any other ocean. But once you take a few steps in, you realize you can't sink. You will float on the surface of that water. Wow. Um, you don't want to get the water in your eyes. But it's the one place, I think, in the world where you can lay back and not have a single muscle engage because you're just being completely buoyed by the water and there's no nothing between you and, and you know this very salty water that's keeping you afloat. So yeah, I mean, you want to relax. There's nothing better than just laying down on your back and then gently floating away into the Dead Sea and not having to move a muscle and knowing you're going to be okay. Biggest lesson that you got from your grandfathers? Well, I tell you, I, I, I'm very lucky. I had two amazing grandfathers that I was able to grow up with and be close with. You know, one of my dad's, my dad's dad and my mother's dad. My dad's dad was an entrepreneur. You know, he was a man who was always selling, always coming up with new ideas. And I just think seeing his passion for the new, seeing his passion for trying out new things and not being ashamed if they failed, you know, really taught me a good lesson. My mother's father 
you know, taught me just the value of family. You know, it was amazing just to see that his face light up whenever he would see you know anyone from the family. He was so positive and always in good spirits, and, and just generally cared and, and liked to joke around. And man, I have to say, like the, those two men are in the acknowledgments of the book, and and they played a massive role in, in shaping me as to be the person who I am. So I appreciate you bringing them up. And what's the next big thing to watch in the tech industry? I mean, I know this is kind of um, an easy answer, but just the way that they handle coronavirus. You know, we know right now that coronavirus is the biggest story and the only story in the world, really. So seeing how these companies adapt to it, I think it's going to tell us a lot about what their futures are going to look like. He'd like to retire in Pacifica. His favorite hobby is running and his book, Always Day One, is available online at your favorite retailer. Alex Kantrowitz, thank you very much, brother, for coming and joining us today. Thank you, Sean. I, I think uh, what you do is amazing. This has definitely been one of the more fun interviews I've done since the launch, and looking forward to continuing to listen to your stuff. And that, my friends, is Beyond the Mic. <laughs>